Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we will discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this is someone who has been one of Vent's biggest supporters, I'd say, pretty much since I started it on social media, through the articles he's written for Vent, and much more than that, to be honest, which I can never really truly thank him for. We met through being big loudmouths on the Huddersfield Town Fan Twitter community, and our friendship's just really gone from there. He's also been a bit of an agony uncle for me at times, and his mental health journey and more recent journey into stand-up comedy has been something I've just absolutely loved watching from afar. So I am delighted, thrilled, and excited all at the same time to welcome Vent champion Graham Rayner onto the Just Checking In pod. Graham works as a consumer care manager, but most people will know him for being a stand-up comedian, which he's been doing part-time since 2018. Graham, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. How are you and, and how are you coping with the lockdown and general madness right now? Yeah. Um, generally pretty good, mate. Um, uh, lockdown has been weird. Uh, as we're recording it, we're just starting the second of the three-week blocks, aren't we? And it's um, it's been really challenging from the point of view of my mental health, I have to say. Um, but on the whole, it's been quite a positive experience, actually, I think. Um, getting to spend more time with my family, but missing um, gigging and comedy like mad. That's been the big hole that I've not really been able to fill yet. Mm, I get that, mate. Well, we've got all that to come and, and talk about, yeah. so hopefully we'll get a bit of a trip down memory lane. So we've got a lot to get through, so shall we just get started? Yeah, crack on, man. Let's kick off the pod, Graham, with something that I'm sure has been a bit of a roller coaster since you started it, and that is your journey into being a stand-up comedian. Now, first of all, I think if most people had to list the scariest jobs in life outside of alligator wrangler or great white shark deep sea diver, they'd probably put stand-up comedian right up there. What on earth made you want to give this a go? You know, where did your love of comedy start, particularly stand-up as well, because obviously there's loads of loads of forms of comedy, and how did you start this journey? Well, um, I don't know where to start with the story. Really, I mean, I've always loved stand up. I've loved stand up since I was a kid. Um, from sort of watching the the Saturday night entertainment kind of characters, you know, your your Morecambe and Wises and your your, your Cannon and Balls and all those guys that you're too young to remember, Freddie. But I remember for being in you know the, the family sort of <laughs> event of watching telly on a Saturday night. Um, and my family are, are Scots, and we're all Scots. And and Billy Connolly was a big part of my childhood um so i used to watch a lot of his stuff um when i was probably far too young to watch it um and and just loved watching his his sort of cheekiness and his character um so i've always had a an admiration for stand-up but actually having a go um i've always been kind of too much of a coward really i suppose or too scared to do it so i'm one of those people who um like a lot of comics i think have my mates have always said, oh, you should give stand-up a go because you're really funny, you're really witty or whatever. So down the pub, you <laughs> find yourself holding court on a Friday night down the pub and you're the centre of all the conversations and you're bouncing off of people and whatever. But I always, because I, I understood comedy from the fans' point of view, I kind mm. of, I always thought, yeah, it's one thing being the funny guy in the pub. It's very different to having to stand in front of people with something you've planned to say and be funny. It's a really different 100%. Yeah. yeah. So I was always scared of... um 
I think almost letting people down who'd who'd big me up to do it because mm. I, I I'd seen people in comedy clubs go up and die on their backsides and it's a horrible experience for everyone. Um, but then um, one of the things that that you'll know about me is that I've done loads of fundraising in memory of my mum. My mum died um, twelve years ago. And um, one of the ways I found myself be, feeling able to sort of feel useful is to fundraise. And I've done loads of like running and stuff like that. And um, I kind of got a bit fed up of asking people to to donate a pound a mile or whatever it is for, you know, every year for different events. Mm. And um, I, I discovered that there was a way of fundraising by doing comedy. So within the space of a couple of weeks, I went up to visit my mum's sister and her husband said to me, in a very sort of erudite and eloquent uh, uh, Glaswegian tone, which I'm not going to try and do an impression of now because it'll be offensive. Um, <laughs> but said, I do like my impressions, but if it's bad, then oh, I might be held responsible. Yeah. <laughs> um, he said, why have you never tried stand-up? Um, because he knows that I've got a, a bit of a creative background in that I, I did a theatre degree and, and I've kind of tried a bit of acting and stuff in my younger days. Mm. Um, and I said to him, I've always been too scared to, and he just basically said, just fucking do it. And, um, and I was like, <laughs> right, okay. And within two weeks of that, I saw um, a local comic who I happened to follow on Twitter for other reasons, and she had just done her first gig um, and she tweeted about it. So I replied with, oh, how did you, you know, how did you, do your first gig where did you do it and she she basically put me onto a course um so in comedy you can do training courses basically mm. um, people don't, a lot of people don't know this do they it's a it's a, it's a professional thing it's yeah, actually yeah, yeah. you know yeah. you don't just go out and, and suddenly out. play the yeah. apollo you know it's, it's not like <laughs> that. um so i and, and this course was for charity it was for cancer research uk my mum died from cancer so it felt like the sort of the fates had, had aligned and, mm. and they're perfect fit yeah, and also if I did go out and die on my ass, then I'd still raise a few hundred quid for charity, and I could laugh it off and, and what have you. So I went along and did a, a course for eight weeks in a you know in Leeds above a pub um, with a professional stand-up leading the course, and I absolutely loved it. And and it, we finished that with a performance at the Wardrobe in Leeds, which holds about three hundred people. There were probably two hundred, two hundred fifty people there. And um, he put me on last. He got to choose the running order. He put me on last. And everyone else had a five-minute limit. And I did 12 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he just, I, t- I said to him, look, my, my set's longer than five minutes. And he went, well, you're the last guy who's going to pull you off the stage. No one's going to get, you know. So I just went and did 12 minutes. And I have to say, the buzz I got from that first show put me on cloud nine. Um, yeah. And um, in the build-up to it, I had um, realized that part of my material um, that I was doing was really similar to, or someone had told me it was really similar to the material that David Baddiel was researching for his new show. He was doing a, a piece, a, a show about um, internet trolls and Twitter trolls. Mm. And so, <laughs> like a naive 42-year-old dickhead, I tweeted him in the build-up saying, just want you to know, if you hear about someone doing material about this, I haven't stolen your material. Like, he's going to know who I am or even hear about it. Um and um he he politely sort of replied i don't worry about it you know um and just let me know how you get on so i sent him a link to the video um of the performance and he basically replied with if that's your first gig you've got a a future in stand-up um and i was blown away by that um so that's that's my start basically um and it was it Mm. was just and to be honest i've i've not really come down from it since then um i've had a couple Mm. of tricky gigs like all comics do but the the sound of the crest of a wave hasn't really fallen yet so it's fantastic mm. 
you, you talked really powerfully there about about your mum, Graham, and, and we'll yeah. we'll come on to that sort of part of your journey later on in the pod. Just going quick now, I've you've sort of done a few of my next questions uh, about the gig itself, but <laughs> before we before we go on to that, I just want to talk about your sort of mentors and, and your and your guides or inspirations um, as a comic. So you obviously mentioned Billy Connolly there, and I remember you, you you've got a really treasured picture of you and him together mm. actually in a picture on 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 social media. Um, would would Billy? Would it be fair to say that Billy was one of your main inspirations um, as a comic? And who are, who else were? Who other? What other comedians were there? Should I say? And also, perhaps without naming names, have you met any comedians which are well known in the public sphere where you've come away thinking actually they're a bit of a muppet? <laughs> the the two comics I would hold up as my sort of inspiration um, would be definitely Billy Conley first and foremost. Um, since I was a kid, pretty much everything he does. Um, just just makes me howl with laughter and a, a genuine kind of affection for him. Um, and and actually, when when I met mm. him, I met I've met him twice after shows. And when I met him the second time, um, my wife was with me, and she couldn't quite believe kind of how um, worked up and giddy I got at the thought of meeting him or the chance to meet him again. Um, <laughs> because I've been quite lucky with various things to meet well known people and. Never have I been quite kind of so pent up and and really you know over the top full of energy because wow I want to meet my hero you know um so she told him this when we were meeting him mm. she said uh, um he you know he is you're his absolute hero and he just looked at me and this is when he was in the full flow of his Parkinson's um, during his last sort of big tour and he just looked at me and he just said aim higher mm. <laughs> which I thought was just cool you know. <laughs> You know, because he's quite humble, really. Um, the other thing about Billy mm, Connolly, he is, he is. You can tell, you can tell in interviews and everything. Yeah, yeah. He's he's still mm. kind of. I, I think he's personally. I think he's true to his roots, and he knows where he's come from, and all of that. And and he's not too keen on airs and graces. I don't think so. Um, the other thing about him as well is that I, his wife Pamela Stevenson, um, is as well as a com- uh, she used to be a comedy performer. But she's also a psychologist, and she wrote two books about him, which I read from cover to cover in about a day each. Um, and when I hear about kind of his childhood and his background and stuff like that, there's so much that resonates that there's a real kind of affection there. He's the kind of guy, I wish he was my dad kind of thing, you know? Um, and the other one, the mm. other comic would be, he's no longer with us. It's uh, Bill Hicks. Um, who was a, an American comic who, who sadly died in his early thirties. But I watched some of his stand up on a loop almost for a couple of years. And, and, just really from his intelligence on stage and his his sort of ability to really own the stage and, and whatever. So those are the two comics that if I could be one-tenth as good as either of those, I would be, you know, I'd die a happy man. Um, in terms of people I've met, so I've done a few gigs with, with well-known people and actually this is probably disappointing from your point of view, but it's not from my point of view, is so far... Everyone I've come. Oh, it's to an open me. question, mate. It could oh, be a good, good question, question, could be a bad question. It's probably more interesting for the listeners if I go, <laughs> "No, that guy's an absolute tool." But um, so far, the guys I've, I've met who who are sort of well known on a comedy tour um, and not necessarily household names um, are are sound as a pound. They're all really supportive. They're all really open to talking to you know sort of the the fledgling comics, if you like. They give sound advice. Um, none of them seem to be up their own asses or anything like that. I've heard of a few that are. Um, but generally speaking, um, most of the comics I've come across have been really supportive. It's not 
the cutthroat, competitive, sort of bitchy industry you might think it would be from the outside in. Um, most mm. most people want mm. everyone to go out and do well. That's it well. great to hear. Yeah, it is because you know I think mm. I was worried that that you might I might rock up and people will be like, "Who the hell are you?" Um, but actually, people are really supportive. One one guy in particular, I mean, my, the guy that did the course for us, um, Jim Bays, um, he's fantastic. He's been a real support to me. But then another guy on my second ever gig, I, I did a gig in Sheffield, and um, a guy called Rich Wilson, who's also got a brilliant podcast, it's a comedy podcast uh, called Insane in the Membrane. Um, he is a well-known comic on the tour. He's been going for a while. And he he watched me perform. He didn't. He he wasn't there when I went on. He was there just after I went on. He watched me do my my stuff, and it was my second ever gig, my first proper gig on the circuit. So I was absolutely shitting myself. Um, and I'd, I I'd somehow leapfrogged from doing the open sort of spots, open mic nights, to being the only unpaid guy on a professional bill, which is something that normally takes a couple of months. So I was absolutely shitting myself, <laughs> and um, and I came off, and he asked me how many gigs I'd done, and I was like, well, this is uh my first proper, proper gig. <laughs> and he, he told me to fuck off <laughs> in a really affectionate way. <laughs> so I was like, what? And he, just, and he just turned around and said, do you want this to be your career? And I said, I'd love it. And he went, well, you're funny enough, so just work at it. And, and he's been really supportive on social media and stuff like that. So I think it's really easy to get feel intimidated by people. Um, but actually, everyone's pretty cool, um, which is really nice, actually. Mm. Mm. And that's really great. Just, just, just. I just have a bit more to talk about about the um, about the gig, mate, and then we'll move on. So, for those who haven't never performed on stage, and especially those who don't know that pressure of being a stand-up, what is it like to be standing in front of an audience with your with your job to make them laugh, essentially? And also, just tell me a bit about the the sort of preparation for the gig itself. So, you know how you're feeling beforehand when you're on stage itself that feeling of you know i'm 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 in i'm in this experience now i've just got to go with it and and also when you came off stage you know you talked about um sort of not coming down from the ceiling since do you think it gave you that confidence to say you know what i'm not bad at this i'll give it another go yeah um so i've sort of stumbled on a bit of a process um since i started so and it and it really stems from that first night i think if if you um if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, so I, mm. um, on that first night, obviously I was, I was the last on of 15 comics. Um, and I'd never done it before. So I was nervous. I was, and, and what, in a way, what made it harder, although it was brilliant, was that everyone went out. I think out of, out of the other 14 comics, there was probably only one act who would have been disappointed with their performance because they didn't do as well as they could have done. So everyone pretty much had gone out and smashed it, and and mm. the room was really strong, really energetic, great audience. So I felt a lot of pressure to go out and and do the best I could possibly do, because I didn't want to be the last act on and and die on my ass. Because if I did, it would have been the last of memory for people. Plus, I had family in the audience and stuff like that. So I was really nervous. Um, mm, of course, and I'd I'd had a couple of beers in the afternoon when I first arrived at the venue because we had to arrive really early. And then I found out I was on last, so I was like, I'm not drinking anymore. So by the time I went on, I, that was out of my system. And I went on with a pint, which I didn't touch once, <laughs> put it on a put it on a table, didn't touch once. So now I don't I don't drink now. Just <laughs> as a prop. Yeah, it was almost for comfort, so that if I dried up in terms of forgetting my lines or whatever, I could just have a drink and try and compose myself. But thankfully, I didn't need it. 
But now I, my sort of rule of thumb is now I don't drink before I go on stage, but I'll, have, I'll go on with a pint and that seems to work. Um, and then the, the, the anxiety. Almost like a comfort blanket. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. And again, normally I don't drink from it when I take it. I take it on, I pop it down, um, I grab the mic and I start. And unless I'm on, if I'm doing one of my longer sets, like half an hour, 20 minutes, half an hour, then yeah, I'll take a drink. But if I'm doing 10, 15 minutes, which is kind of standard at my level, I won't even remember it's there. I quite often leave it on the stage and forget I've got it. Um, so <laughs> it's, um, but yeah, comfort blanket, definitely. And and there's a lot of that in that sort of performance. Mm. There's a lot of things that that, you, that I find myself doing out of habit that's almost like a a nervous tick, but it doesn't appear that way to the to the audience. Um, I've noticed that for some reason I kind of I sometimes fiddle with my ear <laughs> when I'm on stage, um, and I don't know if that's a bit of a calming <laughs> thing, but I kind of almost just have a little bit of a, of a play with my ear, which is really weird. But I've noticed it when I watch videos back. Um, but yeah, I was nervous. Um, but as soon as I got out there, the good thing is if you can get a laugh early doors, if you can get a laugh in the first 10, 15 seconds, it relaxes everyone, including you. Um, so I normally open up with something about the fact that mm. people think I look like Rag and Bowman or whatever. Um, or if <laughs> I've been watching the room, um, which I always do, if there's been some really good interaction between a member of the audience and a previous act, I might carry that on. Um, so if you're in the front row, I'll be like, oh, Freddie, by the way, uh, what you said earlier, and then I'll lead that in straight into material, and then it feels like we've got a bond straight away. So mm, that kind of mm. stuff really helps. Um, in terms of, of kind of buzzing afterwards, um, I don't know. It's 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 a weird one. Um, I find myself, if, I, if I'm gigging local to home um, and I'm on late on in the night, so if I'm on towards the end of the night, I find it really difficult to get to sleep um, when I get home. Um, so actually mm. the, the gigs that are sometimes more helpful are the ones where, because sometimes you might have to drive for an hour, an hour and a half to do 20 minutes of comedy. Um, so then by the time I come off stage at half 10 or whatever, it might be midnight before I get home and the drive home has calmed me down a little bit. Um, because otherwise you're just on an adrenaline rush mm. and you're replaying it and you, and you, you're, um, you're kind of, you're having a bit of a, a mental, um, replay of the of the gig and you're giving yourself little high fives all the way through of the post gig anxiety yeah i don't know if it's anxiety it's certain, certainly nervous energy um you're replaying it and and if you've done really well you're still wondering if you can do what could you have done to make it even better or how can i recapture that next time um so you're always trying to um i don't know get the kind of the the perfect performance a lot of people talk about the perfect 20 or the perfect 10 minute set or whatever and, and some people comedians will say they never ever get it in their entire career but you're always looking for it and i think if you're if you've done something off the cuff that worked really really well you'll try and do it next time and make it look like it's not off the cuff or look, make it look like it's off the cuff and you'll never quite feel like you've recaptured it so it's, it's a real there's you, your cogs are turning all the time and your brain's turning all the time which when you suffer from from some mental health issues then i think sometimes that can be a plus and a minus at the same time. It's a double-edged sword, really. Mm. As you were doing more and more gigs, G, how did you develop your uh, razor-sharp wit when it came to sort of hecklers? So maybe tell me a bit about some of your favourite heckles, some of the worst, some of your favourite comebacks you gave to a heckler, and, and also your your opinion on sort of hecklers as well. You know, Do you enjoy it? Do you think they need to shut up? Do they, you know, do you think that... Um, 
you you just want to do your job because there's, there's I know there's a bit of sort of a, a split opinion in the comedy community in the comic community about about individuals sort of opinions on the art of heckling itself. So I think there's there's sort of two forms of heckle. There's 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 the one where people feel part of the show. So they they feel like the environment has been created where they can chime in with something and it's going to help the show. And then there's the people who don't want to help the show and want to derail it. So my attitude to the two things is very, very different. Um, So if you're someone who wants to pipe up with something funny and you think you're going to help the show, but it's not funny, which quite often happens because sometimes the audience will, will feel... Um, oh, I've got something really good to say, and they'll 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 either cock up the delivery or it just wasn't funny. Then you, you could just come back with something on. You know, I, I regularly sort of say, I tell you what, if you want to be quiet and let me do the material, that's fine. If not, you can get up here and we can all watch you die on your ass for five minutes, and then I'll come back. So you kind of put people in their place a bit. Um, <laughs> if you've got people who are just trying to derail the show, you've got a couple of things to do, um, and generally. The only thing that works is aggression. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, I've not been averse to um, just saying to someone, shut the fuck up. Um, and that's not a clever heckle comeback. It's not a witty one. My fear is, as always been, if you try and engage someone in a battle of wits there, you're turning the audience off because suddenly it's about two people in the room. Um, it's about you and the heckler. And the rest mm-hmm. of the audience just want to see what you've got to say about your actual material. So unless you're capable of something off the cuff you either have something prepared or you ignore it and generally i don't have stuff prepared i'm not because it doesn't happen thankfully it doesn't happen too often so i know for a fact frankie boyle who is a lot of comedians kind of um pinnacle of the current sort of lot of comedians if you like he has heckled heckle put downs ready to go and he does them in the same order. No matter what you've said, the first heckle of the night will get the same put down. The second heckle of the night will get the same put down and so on. And I know that because I know people who've been to see multiple shows of his on the same tour and they come out in the same order. Um, so that's one technique. The best example I saw, I was I was there gigging in Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough, I've done two gigs in Middlesbrough and they are the scariest, it's the scariest place to gig I've gigged so far. <laughs> um, the two places I haven't gigged that are And for the listeners, why is that? Well, so, the people, the women <laughs> The women are terrifying um, So the first <laughs> The first gig I did was in a bar called Sherlock's Which was, I think it was called Sherlock's Because it was on Baker Street So it was a really like witty name um, But it was a tiny bar that probably should have held about 40 And it was in August And I had about 70 people in there And I reckon there were 55 women 15 blokes plus the acts uh, and all the acts were, were blokes and the women were it was like they weren't on a hen night but it was that mentality all of them all of them drunk before the first act went on all of them wanting to pipe up with something all the way through um all of them feeling their part of the show um but it, that one was actually a great night because none of them ruined the night they all just got involved but the second night i did there um at a bar called mickey finn's and it was a quite a rough working man's club kind of environment. And there was a, a particular um, couple who would not be quiet. And the first couple of acts that had been on were quite timid in trying to deal with them. So one person kind of 
just just waited for them to stop and made them, and everybody went quiet and then they realized they were being you know they were the only ones talking and they sort of stopped for a bit but then they started again another person just said oh am i interrupting you i'm sorry and you know that all these acts were trying their best in a timid way to deal with them but the the mc is a guy called james kilvington who's who's quite well known in that part of the world um just decided he wasn't going to have it anymore so um he just told her to shut up or, or she'd have to leave and she <laughs> She um she started coming back at him with some verbals and then he said, Right, fuck it, out you go and he, he he got her to get thrown out. And as she went she walked past him, she threw a drink at him and uh and then just said, Do you want a punch? like that and tried to punch him, which I'd never seen before wow. anywhere. She took a swing at him, but he's an ex semi pro boxer, so he literally he barely moved. He he didn't flinch barely moved he just tilted his head to one side and she got thin air that was it and it was the weirdest but also kind of coolest thing i've ever seen and it just made the gig memorable really but yeah so occasionally you get people who who just don't understand they're not there for comedy or they don't understand what's involved um probably the best example i've got for me was i was um gigging in halifax um and um, again, it was one of these ones where there were some people there who seemed oblivious to the fact there was comedy on. They were just having a proper conversation really loudly through the first couple of acts. And I was sat there and I was getting annoyed for the acts that had already been on. And uh, and so um, I uh, when I went on, they were still talking all the way through my introduction or whatever. So I and a woman in the front row looked at me as if to go, those guys are really pissing me off. So I just turned around to her and said, um, what would you do if uh, you'd driven for, you know, 30 minutes to go to a gig that you weren't getting paid to do and then someone talked all the way through the act? <laughs> and she just looked at me and went, I don't know. And I went, I think I'd just stop and listen to them. Shall we do that? And literally the whole bar went pin drop silent, apart from this couple who suddenly <laughs> realised they would be their, their entire conversation was playing out in front of the whole room. And I, was, and, and I just said, you're going to be quiet now, aren't you, like that? And she just looked so – she hadn't realised um, what she was doing, this girl that was being really noisy. And it just sort of felt like it worked straight away. So there's different techniques, but heckles as such, most people mm. don't don't want to go and, you know, I've not had anyone yet going, oh, you're not funny, you're fat bastard or whatever. So, you know, thankfully I've not been a real victim of them. That was probably a bit of a waffly answer, sorry. No, I enjoyed that. It was really good. Every every stand-up comedian, G, whether you're Jimmy Carr, Sarah Pascoe, Bernie Mac, or even the late George Carlin, will have at some point in their life had a stinker of a set, whether that's because your own jokes weren't funny or because the crowd were horrendous and didn't understand or appreciate your material. Um, a, have you had one of those yet? Uh, B, you know, if it happened, what happened? How did you deal with it? And and what did you learn when it was all over as well? Was it something that had an effect on your mental health or your self-confidence or... And is, all, is it also something which is talked about and sort of joked about in the comedy community as well? Yeah, so the, the, the phrase that most people use is bombing. So you've bombed if you've had a bad night. I haven't yet had a night at what I would call a proper comedy night where I've bombed. Um, but I have had two really difficult mm. or quite awkward gigs. So there's there's a few bits that you can play a like a, a traditional comedy night or a, a theatre or whatever. But then one of the other things you can do, which can be quite lucrative, relatively speaking, is you can do comedy at other events. So most common thing would be, I don't know, your end of end of season football club awards dinner or something like that for your local team. Not not a big team necessarily, mm. but you know, uh, like I, I, my first one of those was I did a gig in Leeds 
um, at a, a rugby club. Um, and, you know, I, I was quite happy because it was my biggest fee to date. I was getting three figures for 20 minutes, which was nice. Um, but no one's there to watch comedy. They're there to get drunk, get the rewards and get more drunk. And that was it. You go and you haven't got anyone really introducing you. You haven't got a, a proper system, you know, in terms of sound system and stuff like that. And you haven't got the opportunity of someone warming them up for you. So my experience of that was the the club chairman, mm. forgetting my name when he was introducing me because he was drunk and saying, oh, well, here he is then, Rag and Bone Man, like that, which he didn't know was normally my opening joke. <laughs> um, so I was like, right, great. And, you know, probably three quarters of the room didn't even know I was there because they were that noisy and that drunk. They didn't even realize something was going on. So I ended up having to do the gig to the three tables nearest me. Um, I made a, I, I talk about sex a lot in my set. And at one point I'm delivering um, a bit about masturbating, um, making eye contact to a lass at the table in front of me who must be about 20 years old. And I'm 42 now. So, you know, slightly inappropriate, but quite funny. And I'm and I'm even acknowledging it, saying, I don't know why I'm delivering it straight to you, love, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then from two tables across, I get an, oi, <laughs> look across at this guy who's about six foot four and built like a brick whatever house. That's my daughter. And I was like, oh, right, okay, well, listen, mate, it's just material. I don't actually want to sleep with her, don't worry. You know, and, and so it was a really awkward gig. I drove home from mm. that thinking that was hard, but I was all already experienced enough to kind of think, well, I got paid from it and this isn't a typical comedy night. And there was nothing I did that stopped them listening. They were never going to listen. So I think from that point of view, I was quite pragmatic where perhaps my natural response, if it wasn't a comedy thing in other things in life would have been to catastrophize it and say, Oh shit, that was really bad. I could have done this. I've done that. Um, I think I'm I'm aware enough of how the industry works to just take the money and run with gigs like that. Um, if when I've yeah. seen acts die in a proper comedy environment where there's a comedy audience who want us want to see good stand up and are ready for it, and yet somehow they've tanked on the night, um, I think it's really easy to blame the audience. It's really easy to say, ah, oh, they just didn't get it. It's their fault. But I think that would have been how I thought about it really early on. But now that I've been doing it for a while, you've got to realize that the audience want to laugh. They want you to entertain them. They're not necessarily setting the highest of bars um, in terms of what you've got to get over. So if you have misread the room and you're, you haven't adapted your approach as a comedian, that's on you. You can't, I've, you know, I've, I've played so many different types and sizes of venue now that you can't, quite have the have the same approach every time your material can be the same but your delivery your approach your demeanor has to be tweaked a bit and i think it's really easy to blame the audience and not have a look at yourself but i don't think you should beat yourself up because as long as you're able to learn from it then it's been a worthwhile experience the two it's, it's become a bit of a mantra of mine that i don't want to do any gig because i've, I've got to pick and choose the gigs i do because i've got a wife and i've got two kids there's young lads on the circuit and lasses on the circuit who can go out and gig every night for every night of the week for a month. I can't do that. I've got a full-time job, a wife and two kids. So I'm, I'm cherry picking my gigs. So I, every time I look at a booking or a potential booking, I say, 
am I going to earn from it or am, or am I going to learn from it? And if I say no to both, then I don't take the gig because mm. there must be something better for me to do. Um, that's kind of my approach now. But I have seen it absolutely destroy people. Mm. I've also seen people completely oblivious to it. There are people on the circuit who regularly die who who think they're regularly smashing gigs, um, or at least they tell themselves that, and it's that could be quite embarrassing as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's quite it's quite awful. Let's talk about your writing process now, G. When you're coming up with new material, how do you go about it? Are there any topics that you deem off-limits, and should there be in comedy? What parts of life do you draw from to get inspiration? And, and also, just as an additional one, do you talk about mental health in your comedy as well? Maybe even joke about it. I always say if you can, if you can joke about your experiences, positive or negative, you own them. Is that something you'd agree with? And where do you sort of draw the line? Yeah, I think in terms of a writing process... Um, I've tried various things, and actually now what sort of works for me is um, something I've seen people talk about as kind of an architect's approach, where I know what the what the kind of the walls and the roof are going to look like, but I haven't decorated it or filled it out. So I, I will come up with almost a few bullet points of something. I might think of a, a funny turn of phrase, and then I'll try it. I think it's really easy to overwrite, um, for me anyway. It's, it's different for every comic. I'm quite lucky in that I run. A f- I quite often run gigs now where I'm the MC, so I'm hosting the night, and that's a really good opportunity to try out quick bits of you know one two minute bits of material and see if it's got any legs and, and finesse it, so that then when you're next doing a gig where you're one of the acts rather than the host, you can try and shoehorn it in. Um, it doesn't always work. Sometimes you think you've got something that's going to be an absolute banker, um, and it's just not not funny enough or it's not punchy enough or it needs to be re-engineered or whatever um so what i tend to do is particularly if i'm doing stuff that's new i'll record my performance on the night i'll I'll set my phone up in the corner video it watch it back and then say okay i need to wordsmith it or i need to need to edit it down and sometimes my problem is as you've probably guessed with some of these answers is i can be a bit too wordy um i can over over analyze the speech part of it or try (laughs) and be too clever with with the words that i'm using and actually, the kind of the golden rule is get as many laughs as often as you can. So you need to be punchy with it. In terms of topics, um, mm. so when I first started, I wanted, to, if you ask me what sort of comic I wanted to be, I would have wanted to be like many, I would have wanted to be a Bill Hicks, a Frankie Boyle, a George Carlin type, where I'm dissecting society and with a really cutting analysis and really clever and, you know, really kind of poli- almost political firebrand stuff. Um, and I've got quite a political mind, um, but I soon realised that there's nothing funny about someone just having a rant on stage. You've got to be able to cut through that and find the, the what's ridiculous about it. So a good example of someone who does that really well is when you see Russell Howard's TV shows, he cuts through that and points out what's ridiculous about Boris Johnson or Donald Trump or whoever. I find myself too emotionally close to it because it those people wind me up too much to be funny about that so i had to move away from that and mm. and most of the stuff i talk about on stage is punching down at myself so self-deprecating stuff about me about my sex life uh, about my upbringing and, and i do mention my mental health um so i have a, a particular bit about mental health talking about antidepressants and their side effects which is 95 percent rooted in truth but the punchline is is a fiction. So I, I joke about 
you know, without giving away the material, I joke about the going to the doctor, getting help, getting sort of described antidepressants, or sorry, prescribed antidepressants, and and being told that it would take six weeks to kick in, which is what I was told, and being advised to read the side effects leaflet. And that three things, and this was something that came back to me when I started doing comedy that I'd obviously filed away because I thought it was ridiculous. But three side effects of the of the the, the medication would be um, an increased desire to a potential for an increased desire to hurt myself, which was not one of my um, issues with my depression. I didn't feel like self harming or or wasn't feeling suicidal or anything like that. Um, the uh, anorgasm, so the inability to achieve an orgasm, and the potential risk of long and painful erections. And I put those three together, and the punchline is that when I spoke to my wife about it, she tripled my dose, which I think is a, a nice twist on the truth, right? <laughs> exactly. I think it's it's a good twist. That's not what happened. But when I was talking about how ridiculous they were, I needed a way out of that material that was funny, because as soon as you, what I've mm. noticed is as soon as I talk about mental health on stage and i say i had a breakdown the room gets uncomfortable for a moment because they're all saying this isn't a comedy topic um you know why, why is he taking us down this path so you have to kind of drag them quickly back to it um but i don't think there are any topics that should be off limits at all i think you should so i do think you should be able to joke mm. about race gender sexuality all of that stuff but the the, the key is to to make sure that the victim of the joke isn't the person who would be the victim of the issue in real life. So if you're joking about race, you're, hmm. you, you should be pointing out the ridiculousness of racism, not making someone who is part of an ethnic minority the victim of the joke. Um, you know, and, and I think that hmm. that can sometimes get, get lost in the, the uh, desire just to get a, a cheap laugh or whatever. Um, so they are topics that I tend mm. not to joke about a lot. Um, but I do, I mean, domestic violence, my, my mum was a victim of domestic violence from my, my dad. And I, I tell a very quick joke about that, which is that, you know, he's, a, he was a stereotypical seventies Glaswegian dad because he was an alcoholic who liked his women like he liked his Mars bars battered. Now that's a quite harsh joke, but in the right context, in the right room, and I, I don't tell it every night that gets a laugh. It gets a sort of laugh that you can hear. The laugh evolves as you're doing it. So you get people, they start laughing, and then they, you get that groan of slight shock that they're laughing at it, and then they laugh at it again. That's a sweet laugh for me. Mm. That's a good, but it's got to be done in the right room. And I wouldn't do it on, you know, if I was a gigging on International Women's Day, or I wouldn't do it on a night for, for domestic violence. But I, w I will tell that joke if I feel the room's ready for it. I've told jokes about um, mm. the the uh, Leicester owner, Leicester football club owner, dying in a helicopter crash. But the joke isn't that he died in a helicopter crash. The joke is that I'm comparing it to something else, and I'm being. I, the joke is about me being sort of insensitive enough to think that's a good comparison. So it's about how you position stuff. And again, that is one that's a gamble. But sometimes that's where the sweetest laughs can be. You, you've also started your own comedy night um, before COVID-19 hit called Live at the Cellar, which you've hosted in your own community of Batley and other venues in the West Yorkshire area. Mm. Just tell me a bit about how it came about, some of the acts you put on, and also why you wanted to do it as well. Um, so I wanted to do it for stage time. As a new comic, you're always hungry to get on stage. 
And I figured if I start my own night, I'm going to get time on stage once a month minimum. Um, so that's how Live at the Cellar Bar started, which we haven't had a gig there now since before Christmas, um, for one reason or another. Um, but it was started for that, and also because I felt like um, the, the the comedy scene seems to be something at the moment where if you're not in a city or a really big town, there's nothing for you. And I'm quite sort of proudly involved mm. with the local mm. stuff in Batley, where I, sort of, I live in, in, in between so Batley, Dewsbury area of West Yorkshire. Um, and I just felt there was a gap in the market, if you like, and that the, the pub that I was hosting it in is a great pub, nice little room. They were quite happy for me to go in and try something. The acts I put on, you know, initially were people that I'd just come across on the circuit that, you know, I'd started out with and whatever, so new acts, but then eventually you're getting sort of bigger and better acts, and we've had some people have won various new comedy, new comedian awards and stuff like that. So it, it's, it became known quite quickly among a small circle of, of comedians as a safe place to go and do new material or a safe place for a new act to start out. Um, I've kind of branched out and um, hosting a gig in Huddersfield now at the Parish, um, which is similar. Um, it's probably you know, technically a better room because it's a purpose-built stage and whatever. But I'm quite proud of giving people their starts, if you like. So I've had quite a few, probably half a dozen people over the year or so that I've been hosting gigs who've made their debuts at nights that I run and gone on to do do quite well um, because I, I just try and create a safe space for it where, you know, if they're, if they're brand new, they're not going to get crucified if they're not brilliant. You know, because who is who comes out fully formed? Not many people. Um, so yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed doing that, and I've tried to have really diverse range of acts on. Um, not from a box ticking point of view, but it makes sense to me to have some diversity on the bill. You can go to comedy nights up and down the country, and all you get is lots of versions of me, like straight white middle aged guys talking about their wives or whatever, and it can become a bit boring. Um, so I try and always have. You know, I always have a woman on the bill. I've, no, I've never run a night where there hasn't been at least one woman on the bill, which, you know, is is tricky because a lot of the, the, the sort of numbers in comedy is very male-centric. And women rise quite quickly. Good good female comics rise quite quickly to the point where they don't want to do my night because they're too good for it, which is fine. Um, I try and have, <laughs> you know, other sort of elements of diversity. So we had at Celebar in, in, uh, in Batley, uh, we had David Eagle, who's who comes up from uh, sort of Sheffield way and he's, he's bl- fully blind. Um, he's fantastic by the way, if you look him up, David Eagle, hilarious. Um, but he's completely blind. Um, so that was a challenge because the cellar bar is in a cellar. So you have to go downstairs to get in and stuff like that. So it was aesthetically difficult. Um, but yeah, I try and run a diverse night. That's, but the ultimate thing is you've got to be funny. So I won't put anyone on the bill who I don't find funny. I've got quite a broad taste in comedy. If I don't find you funny, you're not getting a spot because there will be people I find funny who who will fill it. So that's kind of the the basic quality control level, really. Mm. I've got two questions left on this topic, okay. G. First of all, you know, how do you look back? I know you've only been going for it, going uh, doing your comedy career for 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 a couple of years now. But how do you look back? Um, on it from where you started to where you are now you know how have you gotten better what the what have you been your sort of biggest learnings that you can perhaps sort of take forward and and what mistakes have you made that you've also you've also learned from as well um i feel like i mean if if covid hadn't hit um i'd 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 be riding the crest of a wave now because um 
two weeks ago I was meant to gig with um, Gary Delaney, um, whose household name is done live at the Apollo Mock the Week and so on. Um, and that was my first, that would have been my first paid middle spot on a fully professional lineup. So I've been paid for various gigs, but that would have been, it's kind of a benchmark when, you, when you're getting paid to do 20 minutes in the middle of a lineup where there are only pros on the bill. It's a big milestone. So that was my milestone gig. Um, I'm hoping it will get rescheduled. Um, and then um, coming up at the end of May, I was due to do um, a gig with John Richardson from um, 8 Out of 10 Cats and uh, and other things, a uh, well-known Leeds-based comic. Um, who And I was doing a gig with him to raise money for another mental health charity, Andy's Men's Club. Um, so those two gigs coming so close together had me really on a high. At the moment, I'm slight that's taken the shine off a bit slightly the fact that those gigs aren't currently going ahead although they are both due to be rescheduled as far as i know um but in terms of where i am compared to where i should be for the number of gigs i've done and the length of time i've been going i'm i feel like i'm ahead of the curve which is all i could have asked for um and i'm genuinely enjoying every gig i do for different reasons so i you know i think i've had only one or two gigs where i've not enjoyed it in any way or learned from it or anything like that so i'm really happy with that mistakes mm. um i think probably sometimes trying stuff that i haven't haven't really engineered or worked out yet so just trying stuff slightly too off the cuff and and not having put enough thought into it um and then i think that's probably the main thing is just giving the audience the respect of having at least planned something if you're just doing stuff on the fly it's a 50 50 at best gamble um but other than that i think it's logistics really is the challenge is he's not overdoing it when like i say i've got a wife and kids and a full-time job still um is not to overface yourself so i i took uh, at christmas last year i took basically the three weeks off the last three weeks leading up to christmas off just to avoid burnout because i could feel that it was coming uh, which I, th- I was quite pleased that i had that foresight to do it but just to because christmas is a busy time for us as a family and, and in the community and stuff like that to realize that trying to do- juggle that with gigging as well would be too much december is a horrible month for comedy anyway because everyone's drunk and comedians hate december but you can earn money from it. So I think I probably won't take it off this year if comedy's back. Um, but yeah, they're probably the biggest sort of um, dis- disappointments or, or, or things that I shouldn't have done. And the biggest learning was just to know when to, to put the brakes on because, you know, those three weeks didn't in any way slow down my progression. If anything, they probably sped it up because when I came back in January, I was chomping at the bit really. So, but I'm loving it. It's um, it's my goal is to, to within a couple of years be in a position where if I want to, I can give up my day job. So we'll see. Um, we don't know what's going to happen now with COVID-19 mm. and, and the way that comedy will recover from that. But if it gets back to where it was, hopefully sort of 2022, 23, you, you, I'm, I might not be a part-time comic. I might just be a comic. That's amazing, mate. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we can look back on this pod in a couple of years' time and, uh, you know, reminisce on, yeah. on, on, on this aspiration um, and hopefully that it was it became reality. Just finally, G, I've got one more question on this. If there's anyone listening to this pod who's thinking about going into stand-up comedy, doing it right now and what, might want some help or is unsure about pursuing it, what advice would you give them? Go to live comedy, watch it, 
get used to what it's like. Just immerse yourself in that. You know, go to go to a local open mic night. It doesn't have to be. It's probably better if it's an open mic night because you're going to spend a lot of time in those environments, and then prepare something and give it a go. Don't go up on stage, put a microphone in your hand, and think something funny will come to you because it won't, and that will put you off. But go home, write five minutes and prepare it rehearse it in front of the mirror with a hairbrush in your hand or whatever it takes but plan it rehearse it and then just go and try it and don't give up if you feel like you're getting a buzz from it but it's not working keep going because it might be 10 gigs it might be 20 gigs before it clicks but it's genuinely the best thing in terms of giving me fulfillment professionally i've ever done um you know no day job has ever given me the the sense of satisfaction that this has done so aside from family life it's the biggest satisfaction i've ever gained from anything as an adult basically um so don't give up on it have a go but don't half ass it either put the work in and, and you'll get your rewards we've talked about graham the comedian now i want to put most of the jokes aside if we can and go a bit deeper into your own journey now g so first of all just talk me through your early life your teenage years and whether looking back there were any early mental health experience that you experienced you know who's the Graham that we meet here so I was born in Scotland um but um raised in Essex my mum left my dad um when I was six weeks old because he was a a domestically uh, violent alcoholic um so I'm the youngest of five kids and she basically ran away from um, Alexandria on the banks of Loch Lomond with five kids in tow and hightailed it to Essex um, and apparently only discovered this after she died but actually had a, uh, effectively a police escort to leave him because the local police were so aware of him um, that uh, they kind of cordoned the street off and stopped him from following her. Um, mm. And uh, the local priest gave us some money from his sort of charity fund to pay for train tickets down to Essex where my mum's sister was living and uh, and that was why we relocated. Um, long story short, she remarried when I was just about to turn five um, and the guy she married was, he wasn't domestically violent but he was quite emotionally abusive and kind of, I think the phrase that people use these days is gaslighting, that kind of thing, um, really controlling mm. um, and so she divorced him. They, they sort of had a three or four year period where they were separating getting back together separating gonna divorce got back together and, and that was from about sort of 12 years old till sort of 16 years old um so that was a, really my sort of most formative years i suppose were domestically quite unhappy um in terms of how that affected me growing up I suppose I I went from being a really when I look at the timeline of it I was at primary school I was at quite a small primary school and I was kind of um, a bit of a swat really I was the the clever one in the class I was kind of always working ahead of the rest of the class in terms of where we were in all the different workbooks and what have you um, I was the kind of pupil that I would grow to hate later on actually where if the teacher had to leave the room they'd leave me in charge for five minutes or something like that you know a real kind of teacher's pet um and then I went from from that primary school to um a grammar school which was uh, selective education so I passed the old 11 plus to get in and I went from being the cleverest kid in school to a really small fish in a really big pond um and that coincided with all the problems at home so I can't, throughout my teenage years, I basically acted out at school. Um, was quite lucky not to get kicked out, I suppose. Just low-level kind of dickhead behaviour, really. Um, 
Mm. And um, I started drinking at quite a young age as well. My older brother um, worked in the local pub as a second sort of part-time job to top top off his wage. And I'd be there on a school night at 15, propping up the end of the bar on a Thursday night, having a few beers and, and sort of, you know, not really not really committing to my education, shall I say. Um, and I was, I didn't really have any particular kind of episodes or, or crisis moments as a teenager, but I was definitely moody, angry, um, would, would become quite insular at times was quite lonely. Um, hated being on my own would be, would sometimes be that kid who'd be going and knocking on mates doors to see if they were home. And I might, you know, might take 10, 10 knocks on 10 different doors to get someone at home, but rather that than be on my own. Um, and this was yeah. in the days of four TV channels and, you know, hardly any computer games or whatever. And also I didn't want to be at home. So I think that element um, kind of th- those four or five years were really not great. Um, but as I hit sort of 16, I did my GCSEs and, and I did, um, I opted to stay on for A-levels and I did theatre studies and that was a bit of a turning point really because a combination of the the subject but also the teacher I know it's a really cliched thing but having a teacher who um, became a bit of a mentor um, really kind of turned me around a bit Um, so and he turned me around with with tough love really Um, at one point called me into his his little side office where he used to um, smoke cigarettes that he'd rolled himself when he was in a smoking building because he was that cool you know um, he sit, sat there and just said, and, and I remember him now saying in his, his Welsh accent, stop fucking me about. And he said it like that because he, he was a new teacher to the school and drama was going to get cut if he didn't do a good job of it. And and he could see I was half-arsing my way through life, basically. Um, and he just said, you either want to do it or you don't do it. If you don't want to do it, fuck off. And he spoke to me like that. And it was the first time a teacher at this really traditional 600-year-old school had spoken to me like an adult um, and cut through all the bullshit, really. And he just said, like I say, he just said, stop fucking me about or fuck off. Um, and I snapped yeah. out of it. I, it. It was a real sort of pivotal moment, I think, in my teenage years. Snapped out of it, really committed to, to drama. It was the only subject at A-level I actually did commit to, and I gave hours and hours and hours to it. And I loved it, and I ended up studying it at uni, and it was from then on really sort of a much more upward curve. Um, but, yeah, I didn't have too many really low moments i had a, some incidents with drink i was so because my dad was an alcoholic this is my logic right is my dad was an alcoholic my natural father i never knew him but i was worried that somehow that alcoholism would be passed down to me and the way that me as an idiot teenager wanted to prove i didn't have a drink problem was to drink whenever i could <laughs> right so and, there's an irony in that i'm yeah, sure absolutely i actually at one point did six months where I drank every day even if it was just one drink so that I could say that I didn't have a problem which is just screwed up mentality absolutely know that now but at the time I felt like I was winning some sort of personal battle um so I did have a few instances of of drinking too much and and whatever and at the height of my parents my my stepdad and my mum's divorce I ended up in hospital one night because I drank so much um but I I felt I don't look back at that as a drink problem. It was a behavior problem. Um, mm. Never became dependent on alcohol. and uh, You know, I, I never have. But I think behaviorally, it was a real low point. Um, but then, as I say, I got involved in drama and, and kind of flipped things around, really. Um, 
Mm. And uh, yeah, and, and that, that was it. It was a real upward curve. Mm. You talk um, about this a lot in in the Vent article that you wrote for for um, the platform Gridgy, and we'll, we'll put a link in in the description of the pod for anyone who wants to read it in a bit more detail. Now, you you spoke earlier on the pod about losing your your mum to cancer. Now, just if you could talk to me about you know what age you were when when you lost your mum, the, the process that happened and, and how you were feeling as well in that moment. We, we often say on this pod that, that grief is almost more stigmatised than mental health. Is that something you'd agree with as well? I think so. Um, so in the, I was 29 and it was in the May. Um, I'm, I was 30 in the September and my mum rang me at work and said, um, she rang me on my mobile but I was at work and said that she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, I hadn't even known she'd been having tests. Um, and we and I live I live up in Yorkshire. She at that point was down in in Suffolk. She she moved down moved to Suffolk. So you know we're talking a good sort of um, three four hour drive minimum. Um, and it knocked me on my ass. I left work early, um, and my wife was was working. Um, so I actually went. I didn't want to go home. Um, so I went to my in laws. I've got a really good relationship with my in laws. So I went there. Um, and I remember that day, and this is this. It sounds like bullshit. It sounds like hindsight, but I remember that on the train from Huddersfield to to Batley, where my in-laws lived, thinking this is going to kill her. Um, and I had that thought, and I couldn't get that thought out of my head to the point where I was vision, envisaging her funeral, and I, I went into a real, very quick decline mentally, um, feeling useless, feeling partly because I was so far away um and and just that thought of this is going to kill her i can't see that she's going to beat this and i didn't know the prognosis i knew it wasn't great but they were talking treatment um fast forward to the christmas so so seven months later um my mum we went down to visit with my my daughter who was just turned turning one um she turned one in january and my mum you know her hair she'd been treated for chemo so her hair was gone um she was she was quite frail um even though she's only just early 60s um and we spent some some quality time with her that christmas and she was due to have a big operation in the january and the last conversation i had face to face with my mum was her as i got in the car quietly saying to me i'm really scared and me saying it'll be all right mum you'll be fine and that knee jerk reassurance that you give um and i never saw her conscious alive again and she had the operation mid-january and she had a real bad reaction on the on the operating table um so they thought they were going to lose her on the table and that was to have um double mastectomy um and she went into intensive care um she she wasn't really compass mentis after that at all um and very very quickly the cancer spread had spread from from her her breast to her brain, and once your brain stem is basically sitting in cancerous cells, mm. that's it. You're done. Um, mm. I think the the sort of double edged sword is that my mum's sister in Scotland, who I was talking about earlier, is a cancer nurse. Her, she's a specialist cancer nurse, and so she was able to cut through all the medical speak, but that also meant there was no way she was going to sugarcoat it. Um, so I had a conversation with my mum when she was in the hospital ward when she was conscious. But it was like she had dementia. Um, mm. So she she was asking me um, why I wasn't, you know, are you coming in to see me tonight in the hospital? And I was like, well, no, mum, because I'm up in Yorkshire. And she was like, why are you up in Yorkshire? Mm. <laughs> I was like, well, I've lived mm. here for 
for nearly 10 years, mum. You know, she had no memory of it. Yeah, no memory of it at all. She didn't know who my daughter was, which broke my heart. And and that was the last time I spoke to her, but she just didn't have any idea what was going on. Um, So then when she died, it was, you know, I'd gone down to, she was in Addenbrooke's in Cambridge, which is one of the best cancer hospitals in the world, really. And um, me and the whole family were there. I'm the youngest of five kids. So there's my two brothers, my two sisters. Um, we've got, you know, brother-in-law, stepbrother, stepsister, all this. There's loads of us. We, we've actually took over the, the family room on that ward for for a while. And I travelled down for, I'd stayed down there for about a week. Um, and um, and it was horrible because she wasn't really there. Um, so we were just sort of mm. almost waiting for her to die. And I found it really, really hard. Um, so I actually because I'd grown up in that area and I went and spent a couple of nights with some really good friends of mine who I will always be grateful to because they just let me invade their house for a couple of nights and just sat, sat with them um, playing video games, watching crappy telly and drinking um, to kind of of an evening to kind of purge myself of the hospital that I'd spent all day in. Um, and then, yeah, she died. She, I, on, on the Saturday I said, to my family, look, guys, I've said my goodbyes. I've got a one-year-old at home who hasn't seen me for a week. My wife's on her own. I'm going to leave it now. I'm going to go. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry if that upsets anyone, but I can't do this anymore. I'm going home. And they were all like, no, it's fine. You've done your bit kind of thing, and, and we understand. So I went home on the Sunday, and she died just after midnight on the sort of Sunday night going into Monday morning. So I timed it just about right from that point of view. And I think it felt like she'd kind of almost it was I know people say that to make themselves more comfortable, but it felt like she'd picked her moment, I suppose. Um mm. but then I didn't really grieve. Um I, I delivered her the eulogy at her funeral because I'm out of the five of us, I'm the one who's most comfortable speaking in front of people. So I took some comfort from writing that and, and trying to make being me, trying to make that a little bit lighthearted and funny and tell some nice stories and what have you. But I apart from the night of her funeral, I, I didn't cry. Um, and I didn't go through, I was kind of waiting for a reaction. And I think that was the problem was that I was beating myself up for not having a, what I thought of as the right reaction. So when you ask about stigma, I think people have this big vision of grief in their head that's kind of the Hollywood version of grief where you, you're beating, beating your fists on the ground or whatever and saying why, why, why and all that sort of stuff. And I think people think there's a, a rule book for how you should react. There isn't. So I ended up trying to get some counselling. I, I spoke to um, Cruz, the bereavement counselling service, and a lovely lady from there came out, came and had a cup of tea with me, talked through it, and she went, no, you're fine. You're just, you're just, what it is is you're beating yourself up for not having what you think is the right reaction, but you're actually coping all right. Um, so at that time it didn't have the big effects on me but i think a couple of years later was when it really hit so that was when i had my kind of biggest episode of, of mental health illness i suppose was within sort of three years of my mum dying um i just had a, a kind of a mini breakdown really i suppose um and i and the only thing i can pinpoint is is that really um as being kind of a driving force i suppose Mm. You, you talk about this this moment how you had that breakdown after your after your mum died. If you could just talk to me about the process and 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 what happened 
about that and and also about the sort of masculine environment you were you were surrounded by in both Essex and Yorkshire and how they contributed quite heavily to you not feeling comfortable in speaking about your mental health and and not feeling stigmatized you know without falling into patronizing stereotypes you know tell me a bit about first of all the 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 breakdown and what happened and then also about those environments and and perhaps how it contributed to you maybe feeling worse or 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 not feeling like you could speak out at the time yeah so I mean I still find it hard to characterize my behavior at the time I felt just felt incredibly unhappy um quite angry um a lot of the time without any natural kind of cause for it any any obvious triggers for it um uh, i changed jobs and thought that would be the cure for it and it wasn't and and i, I couldn't pinpoint what it was and i i know i wasn't hugely aware of those feelings as a an entity as such i just knew that i wasn't happy um so i wasn't able to say i wasn't self-aware enough to say i'm depressed or or this isn't normal I was trying to find the cause of the feeling and then and obviously as we know most of that was from you know a chemical uh, deficiency in the brain you know it's it's the science that I didn't understand but the problem I had was that um kind of I think uh, not so much in Essex because most of my contacts were up here but certainly in Yorkshire the people that I was surrounded by at the time either had no understanding of mental health issues or were actually to the point where they would dismiss them entirely, you know, um, and and I don't want to fall into those stereotypes, but the not so much from a men, male point of view, but certainly the the men in the my male friends or whatever, a lot of them were would be the typical response of what have you got to be depressed about? One of them actually didn't even think depression was a real thing. He would deny it was a real thing. He would he would actually say it was a, an excuse that people used um for behavior rather than an actual kind of clinical thing um so i think that that i the the double the sort of the double whammy of it was that i wasn't aware enough of my need to get help medically um i just thought it was a situational thing that was causing it mm. um and i didn't necessarily have the people around me that even if i had being able to articulate what I was feeling would have been emotionally aware or intelligent enough to point me in the right direction. Um, mm. So the the sort of the, the weird conclusion I drew was, well, it's not, it's not my, my work. It's not my job. That's making me unhappy. The only other thing in my life is my home life. It must be home. That's making me unhappy. And I just left. Um, I just, I, I came home from a night out and in the morning said to my wife right I'm unhappy I don't want to be with you anymore I'm going and it came out of the blue uh, from her point of view she hadn't seen that coming she'd known I hadn't been right mentally she'd known I was in a bit of a tricky place but we hadn't been rowing we hadn't had a like a like a, uh, a, a, a an explosive moment or anything like that I just suddenly out of the blue I had got it into my head with the irrational thinking I was go- that was going on it must be my wife that's making me unhappy. That's the only thing that's left. I've tried everything else. And so I just left and I, and I went and it, and it was a, nearly a month before I came back. Um, it was about two weeks before I realized. And actually my wife was saying, no, 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 you're not, there's something wrong. This isn't right. I think you've got um, depression or I think there's something mentally, you have any mental health crisis. 
Um, but of course, at the time as well, she's got by this time two young kids. My son was was like a year old. Um, and she's trying to trying to prop them up and herself up, and then she's got me having this crisis, which is making me say and do really un, unpleasant things. Um, and I won't listen to her. I won't take. I'm 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 actually saying to her when she's saying you're having a mental health crisis. Yeah, well, you would say that. That's easy on you, kind of thing, and and really unpleasant stuff like that, where I'm almost uh, criticizing her for using that as an excuse when she must be the one that's making me unhappy. So it, it, it took a process of a couple of weeks for me to come to the realization that actually I wanted to be at home and that was where I needed to be. And also then a couple of weeks to convince her that that was a safe and okay thing to happen because she's got two young kids in the house. She's not prepared for me to come back and then in another two weeks, change my mind again or whatever. So we had to really talk it out. Um, and and almost build a plan and and the two things that we agreed on would would that i would go and see the doctor and we would see together a counselor um to sort of unpack the that month and the things that had led up to it and how we were going to sort of never get back there again and stuff like that so we i went to see the doctor i got described prescribed i keep saying described got prescribed antidepressants <laughs> and, and went and got referred for cbt talking therapy um got got uh, diagnosed with with depression and anxiety issues um and then we went and and saw a a marriage guidance counselor um and and to be honest you know it was i think i actually got more benefit from that than i did the cbt cbt didn't really do much for me i know it works for some people it didn't do much for me and i think that was again because of perhaps my preconceived notions of what therapy should be like again it's that Mm. hollywood thing of tell me about your parents that that isn't what cbt is as anyone who, who's listening to this who's been through it will know it's about if you're in a situation where you're feeling like x in the future what are you going to do and that wasn't what i was looking for i was looking for that explanation of why i was feeling that way or what is there in my past or what is there in my psyche that is i kind of wanted the the root cause analysis of it as much as anything else because that's how my kind of brain works i need to understand the root of something before i feel like i can fix it um Mm. so again that was a bit of a naivety from me um but yeah that was it was a horrible time really and it took a while to to get back um kind of uh, onto an even keel with my wife and with her family who who i was really close with and you know um who all felt let down and very protective of my wife understandably and and you know, it's, it's been a it's been a long road back, I suppose, and it's and it's not, you know, it's never, it never goes away, um, and even now, you know, it's it's what eleven, no, ten, ten years, nine, nine, ten years since it happened, um, it, you know, even now I still have my moments where my moods and my my sort of mental health journey, if you like, takes a bit of an unexpected curve. Thankfully, it's never got to that stage um, where I feel like I need to go back to the doctor, although there have been a couple of times when I've wondered. Um, but yeah, I'm generally doing okay now. Mm. And and looking back, Graham, in those hugely difficult moments, what was it that you, that you think got you through it? Um, you speak so highly in the article about your wife mm. and you know how is how important is it to have someone like that, or maybe a friend, family member, or other pillar of strength that you can lean on for support in times of need, and also recognise that you know some of these behaviours you may be exhibiting is actually as a result of a mental health issue. You know some of the behaviours you know you can't always excuse for, as a mental health issue, but 
obviously your mental health is a factor in everything that you do yeah i think it's 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 tremendously important and and i think you know i i, I am it's, it's hard to articulate how grateful i am to my wife karen for the support she gives um and it's easy to forget as well when you're in the heat of any moments or when you're in your own issues it's sometimes easy to to become quite naturally selfish and i don't mean that in a judgmental way i mean just that that self-centeredness that we all have the ego whatever it is where you feel like you've got to look after yourself first it's really difficult for her i think as well because i think if she feels in fact she's articulated it as such at times as well that she doesn't feel like sometimes that she can have the room for her own issues if i've got them as well um, you know, if we're both in a in a bad place, how are we going to function as a family, kind of thing? So I I, I need I, I'm acutely aware now, even now, that I need to try and and manage my mental health in a way that allows her the space to have her own issues and problems if she wants them. You know, I can't, I don't need her to mother me, although sometimes she might feel that way. Um, but um, I think the other thing is having friends who understand it. And now, and and that's why I do things like this, and I've done things like the event and whatever is. I've I've realised the value of just being open about it and just not mm. feeling ashamed of it, just owning it really. Um, and I think that's one of the the tools that has helped me avoid another massive dive down into the the darker depths mm. of of my psyche. I suppose is is being open about it, being able to sometimes find the funny in it. You know, we were talking about comedy earlier, being able to sometimes laugh at the ridiculousness of of how this can affect mm. you. Um, because it can be so irrational and so um, unnatural that at times that that it, it does border on the ridiculous. Um, and actually, without going back into comedy too much, I've now got a, a small, close knit network of support there of of you know four, three or four other comics who understand those issues and and maybe suffer from them themselves. Um, so I do feel like I've got a better support network now. Even things like being honest about it with my employer. Um, when I so I, my the job I do now, I've been doing for six years, six and a half years, and I I made a point of talking about it in my interview, which which was scary to do because you're worried it might put people off. But just explaining that I've had those issues, I feel like I've come past them, but that I feel like it's the right thing to do to make them aware of it. Um, I feel like now, you know that that's helped in that relationship. It shows trust from me to them and them to me. So, you know, if I'm having a, a bit of a wobble, I can say to my boss, you know, okay, I'm not in a great place at the moment. So this issue at work isn't helping. What can we do to fix it? So I think, you know, th- there's different mechanisms and, and talking about it is probably the biggest thing that, that I'd recommend to anyone who, who has those issues. Is just if you can find an outlet so you can talk and vent and vent is a great word for what what you know happens is is great because if you don't have that that pressure builds up and that's when you can have an episode that that is really damaging another big part of your life graham and it's a topic that you definitely use in your comedy material like you've said is your kids and your life as a dad now firstly how old were you when you became a dad and what effect did it have on you um so i was um 29 when i became a dad um and yeah it's it i mean it's kind of it changes your life massively um and and it's not something to be ended into lightly i would say but it's been fantastic i, I love my kids to bits um but that you know anyone that thinks that it's going to be 
absolutely plain sailing is, is deluding themselves. But I, I think the first memory I have of being a dad, I mean, I was I was at both births. Um, but my my wife talks um, with kind of a she she almost takes the piss a bit of. There's a moment when my daughter was um, my wife was asleep and my daughter was in the the crib in the hospital. So the, she was you know she was a day old, uh, the first day of her life, and and I was just sort of sat watching her in the crib and my wife woke up and didn't say anything she just watched me watching her and she was sort of she said she was trying to read my mind or whatever and I, I was I think it was just that thing of suddenly having a responsibility for a life um, <laughs> and also realizing that babies don't really do a lot <laughs> you know kind of thinking you know, I think that was what I said to her when I realized she was watching me I was like she doesn't do anything you know um but no it's 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 fantastic and and I think particularly around the time when my mum was ill and and um, and after her death, having a a baby in the house, my daughter was was you know coming up to one when my mum was ill and she she was she turned one just before my mum died. Um, having her in the house meant that you you know you couldn't necessarily allow yourself to wallow in anything. You had to you know baby needs feeding, baby needs bathing baby needs entertainment kind of thing you know nappies need changing all of that mm. so and they're not going to change their routine because they don't understand it so from that point of view there was a real kind of tonic element to it um and now that they are older um <laughs> in my comedy routine i talk about them both being nine and eleven but that's not how old they are now but they would have <laughs> been that age for comedy for at least a couple of years uh, because it worked with a joke, but um, my youngest is ten, Archie's ten, and, and Caitlin's thirteen. Um, and I suppose it's it, you know they're kind of them as much as anything they're mates now. Archie's like my best mate, really. We go to the football together and stuff like that. We do that father son thing. And, and my daughter and I, my daughter's very similar to me. She's quite hot headed at times, and we we sometimes clash and, and whatever. And um, but she's also really loving and, and sort of tender and stuff like that. And they're both they're both very funny as well in their own little way, um, which can be a bit of a nightmare as well because I can look at particularly at my son, but both of them, and I keep thinking, God, they're really they're really trying to get a laugh all the time. You know, they're playing to the crowd. <laughs> that's dangerous. You know, um, but, a bit of pot kettle no, black there, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, just a bit. Yeah, it's really difficult for me to say to Archie, particularly. You know, you don't always have to make a joke out of everything, and he looks at me and he's like, "Dad, come on." Um, but no, I, I do. You know, I think it's it's one of the best things you can do. Really, it's not for everyone, but uh, it's, it's certainly one of the best things I've ever done. Mm. Those those first few months after you became a dad, Graham. Who who's who's the Graham we meet here? Is it someone completely different to before you became a parent? And and how did you sort of adjust to it, or was there sort of like an epiphany moment where it sort of dawned on you, like you said with the um when you watched your uh, your daughter in the in the in the hospital? So um, when my wife was about six months pregnant with our first, um, I remember sitting at my father in law's house in the back garden with uh, my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, and my best mate, and we were having a beer. And I was explaining my fears about fatherhood, which were that Mm. I'd never really had what I would consider a strong father figure in my life. And I wasn't sure if I knew that I was going to be any good at it, basically. Um, And then fast forward three or four months and, and... just kind of I felt like I, I tried to throw myself into everything so I was quite happy to change nappies I was quite happy to bath the kids you know and you know do, read up on how to cook for kids and all of that so they weren't eating food out of a jar and, and what have you and, and I suppose that's the the dad 
you find there. I did say to my wife that while she was in uh, in the stages of pregnancy and unable to drink, I wouldn't drink at all, which mm. lasted about two weeks, <laughs> which she reminded me of all the time. So there are elements of it where you kind of make a certain commitment and then realise it's not great. But yeah, I think... Um, yeah, it's difficult. I think I did grow up, not necessarily, I'm not not necessarily even fully grown up now, but I think it did cause me to grow up a bit and certainly accept that the the part of your life where you're down the pub on a Friday night and you're out with the lads and you can, you can, have, you can sleep in until lunchtime on a Saturday morning and then go back to the pub, that time of your life is gone for at least 18 to 20 years. Um, mm. and, and that's fine. Um, sometimes you still miss it, but... I just think some more responsibility, some more acceptance of that. And, and just I try and be a fun dad, but I try not to be uh, only a fun dad, I suppose. And, and sometimes I'm probably too strict um, or short-tempered with, you know, time has kicked in and whatever. But, um, yeah, I like to think of a pretty good dad. Not a perfect dad, but mm. an okay dad. <laughs> I think no one's perfect. It's mm. pretty important to stress that. I just want to talk just briefly about that last point you said about the type of dad you are, G. Um, are you someone that was, is, is going to teach both your kids, but particularly Archie, that as a man, it's okay to show emotion and vulnerability and, and perhaps help redefine that outdated ideal of masculinity that definitely was prevalent in, in both our generations, and, and especially in, in your case where you didn't really feel like you even had a really strong father figure either? Yeah, I think for sure. It, trying to help them be emotionally intelligent and emotionally open it's tricky when you're not necessarily the best example of that. So I, I, mm. I'm still now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like in situations like this, I can talk openly, but at times in a family situation, it's very easy to get defensive or closed off mm. and, and mm. you have to learn the behavior not to, but I'm also acutely aware that um, childhood can be difficult being a, being a woman can be difficult. Being a bloke can be difficult. So we try and have a really open um, relationship as a family where we're able to talk about stuff. Um, I'm really lucky. My wife is a teacher who specialises in early years and special needs. Neither of our kids have special needs, but what that means is she's really clued up on, I suppose, the the, the watch outs, the, the, the things to avoid and the things to really do. And so I take a lot of a lead from her about stuff, but also particularly, like you say, with Archie, just trying to make sure that that he knows he's okay. It's okay to be sensitive. It's okay to have doubts and and whatever. There have been times when I will find myself saying things that I would hate to hear other dads say, like "man up" and stuff like that, a little bit. And then I I I kind of try and circle back on that and and do something a bit different and and you know and and have a conversation with him about that. And if he's troubled by something at school, you know talk about that or whatever he's quite a sensitive lad and sometimes i feel like he could be oversensitive and and what have you but i guess all parents can feel that but then you've got to try and remember i'm looking at it through the lens of a 42 year old man he's looking at it through someone who might be experiencing whatever the issue is for the first time so mm. it's 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 a fine balancing act and, and again like you said no one's perfect you're not going to get it right all the time but he certainly knows that you can talk about your feelings he certainly knows that it's okay for men to do X, Y, and Z that in the past we were probably told it wasn't okay to do, you know, and, and my kids have both got an inbuilt 
kind of, and it definitely, definitely comes from nurture, not nature, like a really strong sense of fairness, a really strong sense of kindness, um, and and an ability. That, the reassuring thing is, and how you know you're getting it right is, most of the time they're happy to ask questions. So um, if something traumatic happens, then they can ask you why it's happened. Um, and stuff like that. It's difficult at the moment, as we mentioned earlier, we're recording this right in the middle of the COVID nineteen lockdown. I don't know how I would have coped with that as a teenager or or late years at primary school. You know that there are elements of that where they're struggling a little bit because they're not seeing their friends every day. Their routine's gone to pot and whatever. So, you know, managing that's a bit challenging, and there's a little bit of of making it up as you go along with that. But um, they're good kids, and they seem to be well adjusted and whatever. My daughter's thirteen, just hit puberty's hitting hard. Um, so that brings other challenges, but you know, for the most part, they 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 seem to be good kids who are coping well with life and and will be able to cope well with life. Mm. I've got two questions left, G. Now the first one's a bit more of a light-hearted question, mm. and obviously we are both massive town fans. How how do you use Huddersfield Games as quality time you spend with the kids? And are you the owner of a story? of someone who once shouted at Cardiff's captain and ex-town player, Sean Morrison, when he was about to take a throw-in. And remind me how that exchange went. Okay, um, so yeah, Archie comes to the football me all the time, and it's actually a three-generational thing. So my wife's dad, me, and Archie go. Caitlin comes sometimes, um, but it's generally a Saturday thing. Um, me, Archie, and my father-in-law. And it's just nice, fun, blokey time where quite often we'll say, you know, what happens here? Stay, a bit like what goes on tour stays on tour. Um, you know, don't tell your mum mm. kind of thing. Um, he's recently discovered bovril and meat pies. Um, he's <laughs> loving that. So it's just a nice time, and it, and it just means as well that my wife and my daughter get a bit of girl time as well, um, away from us, which is nice. Um, the Sean Morrison story is a classic one. It was a really bad nil-nil draw. Dollars ditch water, and Sean Morrison, who used to play for us, was taking a throw right in front of us, and I sit four rows back, and I, I was bored. So as he wound up to take the throw, I just piped up quite loudly, Hey up, hey up, Sean, lad, how have you been? And he stopped, grinned, turned around and went, ah, not so bad, and then started his throwing again. <laughs> He's a good lad, Sean. Everyone, so. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Nothing I remember being sat... Note in that game <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. It's one of the most awful games of football I've ever watched, and it was a Premier League game. I think all the analysis after that game was basically saying this should be a League 2 game, yeah, uh, which probably tells, yeah. probably does a story in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good laddie, Sean. Um, just a final question, G. If there are any new dads listening to this podcast or, or struggling with the ups and downs that come with fatherhood, what advice would you give them before the big day happens, and just generally from your experiences as well? Don't panic. Um, just you know, just trust yourself, um, and um, just remember to take a breath and sleep when you can. I suppose would be the one. But also, just talk it out with your partner or your wife or, or you know the kid's mother. Um, come up with a plan. Um, no, I'm far from perfect as a dad, as you know, my wife and kids will tell you. But I think that that compared to how I was worried I might be, um, I'm a damn sight better than I was. And that's just come from largely listening to my wife and trusting in what she says, but also just kind of just trying to love your kids and and be a good dad to them, I suppose. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Graham, thank you so much for being my special guest on this episode's pod, for your openness, for your honesty, and I wish you the best of luck with your comedy journey for the rest of this year and into the years ahead. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. 
or if you're feeling very, very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.